0: bibles with me to ruth Ruth, chapter four hope to wrap up our study this morning this has been a profitable and enjoyable study for me and i i pray it's been as profitable for you all uh some tremendous truths that have been wrapped up in this uh little often neglected book in a book that's treated more almost like fiction uh, rather than the Word of God as it as it truly is, <clears throat> I want to do just three things this morning. Uh, if I can get this back. there we go. okay. How about uh moving the next slide for me i 'll point at you every time I need it done okay we 're frozen. Oh, try it again. Look at that. Thank you. I love techies. <clears throat> uh, I, as I said, I want to do three things this morning. The first is I want to read through this um, closing chapter together. I'm going to ask you to read along with me as we go through various portions of this, and then we'll stop to deal with some of the details and the unfamiliar bits as we work through the narrative. Uh, secondly, I want to quickly review some of the things that we've already looked at, that we've drawn out of the previous three chapters, but we'll do that very, very briefly. And then lastly, I want to focus in on what the the real main point of this book is, where it's been driving all along, because there is a central theme. We just haven't gotten there yet, but it really comes out in this for chap, fourth chapter. But if, if you haven't been with us from the beginning, let me do a little bit of a recap so that you're in this, because uh, as I said, we're in chapter four. This is The, uh, the narrative has taken quite a, a turn here. Um, and this all takes place in the nation of Israel back in the time before they had a central government. And so things were a little messy. Uh, the nation itself was in a bit of disag- disarray. Uh, society was messy. And due to a famine that had occurred in the area of Bethlehem, which is not that far from Jerusalem in Israel, uh, a city of four uh, or a, a family of four uh, Jews left that area of Bethlehem and migrated to a nearby nation called Moab. It was a very small country. It was kind of a a cousin nation to theirs. And during that time, as they were there to wait out the famine, uh, the head of the family, Elimelech, died. Uh, That left his widow, Naomi, with two sons, who at that point were unmarried. But in time, the two sons married a couple of young ladies from this nation of Moab And then they died as well. And this left this woman, Naomi, not only a widow, but bereft of her two sons. That was the end of her family as she knew it, except for the two daughters-in-law. In In time, she heard that the famine where they were back in Bethlehem was over. And so she decides to move back home. And her two daughters-in-law say, we're going to go with you. Let's go back home too, back to your home. But in the process of time, one of them on the way says, "Nah, maybe not. I'm going to go back to my own family in Moab. And then this other woman, Ruth, whose name uh, is the the heading of this book, uh, she's a rather remarkable young lady. And she says, no, I'm committed to you. And I'm going to go back to Bethlehem with you, back to be with your people. All good and well, but once they get there, how did two widows support themselves in that society? So they have no real means of support. And Ruth, uh, enterprising uh, and taking advantage of the fact that God had put laws in place in Israel that the poor had to be provided for by making sure that there were scraps left in the fields after harvest. And so she goes out to gather up these scraps so that they can have enough for the two of them to eat. And in God's providence... Ruth ends up in the fields of a relative of her mother-in-laws. Now, the guy who owns this field, his name is Boaz, and he takes a shine to Ruth pretty quickly. Um, And in time, Naomi, the mother-in-law, crafts a plan to get Ruth married off to this older but prominent and apparently wealthy relative by the name of Boaz. So we left the last chapter of, with Ruth having actually proposed to Boaz. Uh, that may not be as remarkable in our society today as it was then, but it was fairly shocking that a young woman, especially a foreign woman, would propose to an Israelite male at this point. And, and she proposes to Boaz, and Naomi tells her when she goes back home, I got to tell you, this guy, he will not let this go. He'll, he'll get this resolved. Uh, believe me, he's going to act on it. And so, as you might imagine, Ruth, getting married to this guy, would bring stability for the two of them. They'd have security. But God has even bigger plans in store. That's what this is really all about. Plans that include even you and me thousands of years later. You have to see where the whole Bible story goes to understand how this plays into that whole plan. Now, Boaz, as I said, is clearly fond of Ruth already. And he has certain rights that he can exercise given their financial situation. But there is another, an unnamed relative who's a closer relative to Naomi, who has kind of has dibs on the situation. And uh, that needs to get sorted out. And that's where we pick up the narrative this morning. So that leaves us right here in this fourth chapter. And so I'm going to ask you to read this portion aloud with me. We're just going to read these first two verses together. Are you ready? Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Now, a little odd for our ears, but the gate of the city was where all business got transacted in those days. The prominent men would gather every day, and they would exchange the news of the town. And and talk about and transact business all that was going on in their community and they would make the community decisions they were the elders they didn't have as we said a central government they didn't have a a mayor or anything like that so they would just put the this group together and it always took no less than ten men to form one of these units in order to form a city later after the exile of israel uh... scripture Scripture doesn't note it, but Jewish history does, that it always took ten heads of a family in order to form a synagogue. You needed this enclave of, of people who were more mature and men who could. Usually they were businessmen who were well-established. Uh, an interesting hap- thing happens in this text here. It says right up there near the thing, now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there and behold. In the Hebrew, that behold is really significant. It's kind of like, wow, who'd have thunk it he, that he'd come along right then? You're kind of a shock. Uh, Boaz is there looking to sort out this business that's at hand, and he's hoping to marry Ruth. And the very guy that he needs to sort this out with shows up at just that moment. Isn't that a surprise? Right on cue. Because as we've seen already all the way through this book, this is the way God's providence works. He's behind the scenes orchestrating things. You see it in this book. But he's doing that in your life and mine as well. We may not know it. We may not see it at the time. I can tell you, I can look back over the the years of my life, as ancient as I am and as far back as they go, and I can see God's hand at work with people all the way through and circumstances, things I would have never arranged, but God graciously arranges. Uh, A lot of them I would have rejected if he had proposed them to me. But he's used them as the best blessings in my life. Anyway, Boaz calls to this guy and says, Hey, come and sit down so I can lay out the details of what's up. And verse 2 notes, uh, you saw it up here, that Boaz uh, took ten men of the elders. Uh, That is, again, an interesting phrase in the original. It bears the, it intimates that he had a lot of clout in the community. And he could say to these 10 guys, I need you for a meeting. And they were kind of obliged to sit down and have the meeting. And so that's what they do. They, they sit down with him. And so read together aloud with me, will you? The next two verses. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. Well, the actions are pretty clear on the face of it. That doesn't take a lot of explanation. But there is some underlying information that can be helpful in unpacking the story. Back when Israel had originally invaded Canaan, God had divvied up the land among the 12 tribes. And he had given them prescribed areas that they could live in. Uh, So you'll see, for instance, that the tribe of Ephraim is right there and West Manasseh and Reuben here and Simeon which is actually inside the borders of Judah which is the larger section here and God had made a law that you could not transfer property from one tribe to another not only couldn't you transfer property from one tribe to another if you owned property you certainly couldn't sell it to a foreigner anyone outside of Israel and You couldn't even sell it outside of your family's allotment. So this is where this this story gets to to be interesting. So if you were from the tribe of Judah, for instance, like Naomi and Boaz are, they're from this big tribe here. Moab was down here when they went away for the famine. Um, If you were from that tribe, you um, you couldn't sell the land permanently. But you could kind of lease it. The most you could do if you got into a financial crunch, and it appears that this is what Elimelech did, you would lease it out. And at that, the law said, you could only lease it for a maximum of 50 years. That was the total thing. And then every 50 years, God had instituted in Israel what he called a jubilee. Now, at that jubilee, this is a very cool law, at that jubilee, all such land transactions were voided. Everything went back to zero. And whoever owned the land originally got it back. And if you had any debts, they were all canceled. Everything was done. Clean slate. There was like this giant economic reset button. And they pushed it, and it was done. The sad thing is that history tells us they never once practiced this. But nevertheless, they operated on this. And they used it for determining land values. It was uh, kind of a twisted thing after a while. So if you bought or leased the land, it was only worth the number of crops you might be able to get from it in the remaining years before the Jubilee came. So property values gradually devalued till you hit the 50th year, and then they went back up to the maximum. So other families, other members of your family, if you leased it out like Elimelech apparently did, they had first rights to buy it back and keep it within the family name, no matter who else you may have leased it to. In the meantime, they could, they could buy out the lease. And some of you have cars and you've done that sort of a thing. Sorry, it's not the best way to go. But anyway, um, I'll give you economic advice later. Uh, so like I said, it appears that, that Elimelech had done this uh, to get cash for the family during the famine and to head off to Moab. But Naomi, coming home as a widow, she didn't have access to that that asset. It was leased out to somebody else, and she didn't have any money to buy the lease out. So she's stuck. But she does have these two relatives. She's got one who's real close to her husband, and then you've got Boaz. And the two of them are, because they're relatives, have the right to buy out the, the option on the lease. So Boaz lays out the the situation to this other guy. Naomi's back in town. She wants to sell the land to another family member in order to support herself, but it's leased. So will you buy out the lease and wipe out her debt? Because if you don't want to, I will. That's how he makes the proposal. Apparently, there were a lot of years left on the lease, and that'll factor into what we're about to see. So this guy says, yeah, I'll buy it. Uh, Figure, I'm going to get the use of the land of the cash crops until the next jubilee. So it's a shrewd investment. And I have the appearance of helping out a relative. It's a win-win. Everything looks great. But there's a hitch. And the hitch comes in the next few verses. Read them with me, will you? Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite. The widow of the dead in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now, this entailment to marry Ruth wasn't part of the law. But it appears that this was something that Naomi appended to the deal. She said, if you want to buy my land, if you want to get the land and and do this whole thing, this is part of what I put on it. She put a rider on the contract. It's a stipulation that she came up with. And when that comes up, this nearest redeemer backs out. His reasoning is this. Again, a little bit of complicated Jewish law, but it'll make sense in a second. Due to the way the law worked, if he had just bought the land, being a family member, and Naomi having no offspring, no heirs, the land would permanently be his. So this would be enlarging his estate uh, for per- perpetuity, but still within the family. But if he has to take Ruth in the deal, a provision in God's law called Leverite marriage. Leverite's just an old word that means brother-in-law um eleverite marriage would kick in and that's going to complicate the issue under this law if this guy married ruth he'd be duty bound to try and produce an heir with her an heir who would eventually inherit the land so he wouldn't end up with it per- it, it wouldn't enlarge his his estate permanently so he'd spend the bucks to buy out the lease only to have to turn the land over to the air later on and he wouldn't be able to keep it permanently so he'd lose major money in the deal and hence his statement here in the in the context it would ruin my own inheritance it would i'd lose most if not all of the investment value in it so no thank you not interested and boaz says great let's Let's formalize this deal. I'm glad for your refusal. I'm going to exercise my option to buy it and marry Ruth and I'll raise up an heir. And I don't care what it costs me. It's worth it. Next few verses. Read them with me. Little tight, but you can get it. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilian and Malan. Also, Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malan, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Cool. Lots of people have tried to figure out what's behind this thing of pulling off your sandal and handling it to the, handing it to the other guy. Nobody knows. So I won't venture a guess. Every commentator I consulted said the same thing. We don't know. So I guess I'll go along with that. I don't know either. But that's what they did. That was the way they handled it. So the deal's consummated and it's witnessed. And it's witnessed not just by the elders. Look at the, at the way that the text reads this. Then all of the witnesses, even the people that were gathered around, said, hey we, we witnessed this. Apparently this thing had really gotten interest in the community. People had all gathered around to watch this transaction and see what was going to happen. And they gave their heart approval and blessing let's go and read a couple more verses here's the then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said we are witnesses may the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah who together built up the house of Israel may you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. They said basically three things. They wanted to to bless him for what was about to happen here. And they said, first, may this union prove fruitful. Rachel and Leah were considered the two mothers of Israel. The 12 tribes essentially descended from them, although the midwives were involved as well. But they were, he said, we want that kind of fruitfulness for you. And secondly, may your reputation, Boaz, increase in light of your willingness to act so nobly and redemptively. This is a, a great thing you're doing. And And it's wonderful. And then may your descendants carry that noble tradition and reputation down through the generations. So they're they're excited about this. They they give him a blessing on this. And then we get this wonderful epilogue. You can read it along with me. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Whoa. Naomi. Naomi. Naomi who said, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, for I'm bitter. Bereft, poverty-stricken, lonely Naomi, at this point, against all odds, now has this precious grandson. The whole community is taken by this. Uh, You can hear it in, in all that's said here. A grandson, the text hints, that she, she took so much to herself that she, she wanted the main responsibility for raising him. She at last had the vessel into which to pour all that love that had been dammed up through the hardship and bitterness of the earlier years. God is so good. But I want you to look at the words of the women around her. Sometimes, you know, we can say things better than we know. In, in the Gospels, there's a place where Caiaphas, the high priest, as unregenerate and as obstinate and as uh, opposed to Christ as he can be, prophesies. Sometimes that happens. And this is what happens here. The language is, is really interesting. <clears throat> Whoops. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you is more than seven sons who has given birth to him. Do you catch who they're talking about here? You would have thought they were talking about Boaz, but they aren't. They said the women said to her, blessed is the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer and Ruth, your daughter-in-law, has given birth to him. Obed is the one that's called the Redeemer at this point. It's fascinating. He will be the Redeemer, the restorer of life and the nourisher. It isn't Boaz, but Obed, because he's going to be all this to her in her old age. And it's why in the final note we read this. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nation. Nation fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. The David of whom it would be prophesied, the Messiah would come from his bloodline, the Redeemer. Now you see the thread. How it all starts to come together. We read of how this bloodline will produce not only King David, but the one who would one day sit on God's throne, ruling God's people for eternity. Jesus the Christ. It's astounding. And it's, it's all in this little narrative that you really don't expect it out of. Now, now before we home in, I, I want to come back to this main point. Before I get back to the main point of the narrative... I want to remind us again of some of what we've gleaned so far and then, and then tie it all together if I can. Let me go back just to remind you of a couple things we learned. Like back in chapter 1, the first thing we learned is that when providence allows great suffering, it's easy to imagine that God has something against us. Many of us in this room have been in that very place. Even though we know Christ and we've walked with him, Certain things have come into our lives and we've wondered, what does God have against me? And in the midst of suffering, it's easy for our thoughts to go there. It's something we need to resist by a greater understanding of of God's person and of his ways in his word and from the Holy Spirit's revelation. But we, we can't go there. It's where Naomi was at the beginning and God delivered her from it, which was a blessing. Secondly, that in times of deep sorrow, it's hard to see the blessing God's placed even in closest proximity to us. As she returns from from Moab, all she can do is mourn loss and think of the weight of trying to care for these daughters-in-law, but she doesn't realize that her greatest blessing is right there beside her in Ruth. And we can lose sight of what God has provided for us. Suffering can easily blind us from the greater, greater reality of how Good, our good God is working even in the midst of our pain. We can really lose sight of him. Third, we don't know the end of the story while we're still in the midst of it. Uh, Naomi didn't think she had any future. She didn't know yet. And so often it's true for you and I. We, we think in the short term. You know, if this particular situation doesn't change, if that doesn't change, that's going to be it for the rest of my life. And you don't know what God has in store yet. We know some of it. It's one of the reasons why we really have to look forward to what he's promised in the heavenlies when Christ returns. But we can get so caught up in the short term. And we see this coming back around in chapter 4. The hopelessness that characterized Naomi at the beginning of the story is more than reversed by the end of it. It's transformed. And Christians desperately need to look at the end of the story as it's been laid out for us in Scripture. Christ's return, the resurrection, the the new heavens and the new earth, he's promised us. They have to factor into how we face what we face today. Especially those that are in in places of chronic illness or, or incurables and utter necessity our present sufferings are not the end for any believer but we do have a sure end to look forward to we we have that as a counterbalance to in our present distresses and then in chapter two and i'll make these shorter um we were confronted with with two massively important realities in the christian life first that We need to trust God's sovereign providences in the way that he's arranged the events and the places and the times of our lives. And secondly, we need to recognize his provision in those providences. For he always makes provision. Uh, A couple weeks ago, um, Sky and I were in the city and uh, we'd gone to a wonderful New Mexican restaurant uh, I'll give the commercial later. And, uh, and, but we were driving around an old neighborhood of mine. Uh, the, the restaurant was near a place where I worked for a while. And, and I told her I used to walk to work from this place, from my parents' house and off of Park Avenue. And, and one day as I was leaving work and I was walking through this neighborhood, this neighborhood off of East Avenue filled with all these magnificent homes and all these great houses, and I was, I was grumbling to God how upset I was that I, I really didn't have much money in my pocket I was pretty upset and uh, I'm a good guy I read my Bible I pray, I go to church God's not coming through very well I'm, I'm a little ticked off and uh, I'm walking down the street and I come to this place and I see something flapping on the sidewalk, can't really be real, but it is it's a $50 bill. I pick it up, and I'm so convicted at that point. Now, $50 wasn't going to change my life. It changed a lot at that particular moment, not to mention the lunch I got from it. But, um, <laughs> but it wasn't the $50 bill. It was the reminder that God knows, even in the smallest things. There it was. I could pick it up, I had it, and he would provide. And he's always provided. There have been times when I wished he provided differently. Uh, Like, and I've made reference to this any number of times, the children of Israel going through the desert, and scripture saying that their clothes didn't wear out for 40 years. How many ladies here wish your clothes didn't wear out for 40 years? It's not, it's not the way we want them to provide. They didn't want manna every day. Boiled manna, fried manna, sautéed manna, deep fried manna, manna with manna, <laughs> raw manna. And they started to complain, but wasn't God providing, making a way? And sometimes we, we, don't, we don't want that way, but he's got the way and we have to trust his providences. It, it came out in, in her life. No aspect of the believer's life is random or unknown or or unguided by our loving, omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent God. None of it. Christ meets our true needs. In chapter 3, we saw that for the Christian, bitterness is an enemy to to be combated, not an unchangeable condition to be accommodated. We have to take ourselves in hand. And that was a good lesson too, but... But what's all of this been leading up to? (laughs) Where's the focus been going all along? That's what finally emerges in full view here in chapter four. And with all the good things that we've learned uh, throughout this so far, and I know I, I only gave you a quick rehearsal of just a few of them, we have to see all of it comes down to this. We don't get the book until we get this, how Jesus Christ is redeemed as the great redeemer of his people. That's what this is about. That's what, that's what Ruth is set here for, so that we can see it in advance. You'll remember that we noted at the beginning of this study how the book teases out how it is that believing Gentiles somehow get grafted in to enjoy the, the promises that are given to Abraham. And we do that by union with Christ through faith. And how Ruth is a Moabite, she typifies how the believing Gentile By embracing God and God's people, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob uh, gets brought into the family, and now we see this wonderful picture of Boaz and how he he serves as a wonderful shadow of the of the redeeming Christ to come, and spectacularly so in this exchange that he had with the other possible redeemer. It's just so rich. Let me go back to one part of the text remember what it notes. The Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. What's the bottom line? What did he say? It's too expensive. What's needed is too expensive. It would cost too much to make the provision, and I would lose something of what I have. But this is where Boaz shines in the foreshadowing of Jesus. Favorite verse of my wife's. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. Nobody teases this out better than the inimitable John Flavel, the Puritan. He imagines in one sermon a dialogue between God the Father and Christ the Son on this very issue. And this is is how he casts it. He says, how reasonable is it is that believers should embrace the hardest aspects of obedience to Christ who complied with such hard things for our salvation. They were hard and difficult terms indeed on which Christ received you from the Father's hand. It was to choose either to pour out his soul unto death or not to win you at all. You could imagine the father saying when driving his bargain with Christ for you, the father would say, my son, here's a company of poor, miserable souls that have utterly undone themselves and are now subject to my justice. And justice demands satisfaction for them or will satisfy itself in the eternal ruin of them. What shall be done for these souls? And Christ answers, O my Father, such is my love to and pity for them. That rather than they perish eternally, I will be responsible for them as their guarantor. Bring in all their bills that I may see what they owe you. Lord, bring them all in that there may be no after reckonings with them. At my hand, you can require it. I will rather choose to suffer your wrath than they should suffer it. Upon me, my father, upon me be all their debt. And the father replies, but my son, if you undertake for them, you must reckon to pay the last penny. Expect no abatements. If I spare them, I will not spare you. And the son replies, be content, father, let it be so. Charge it all upon me. I'm able to pay it. And though it prove a kind of undoing to me, though it impoverishes all my riches, empties all my treasures, yet I am content to pay it. That's the kinsman redeemer we have. No matter what it cost, he said, if it means the redemption of their souls, I'll pay it. And if you're a believer here today, that's what he did for you. That's what he set up. No angel could pay the price because it was, it was human sin, not angelic sin that needed to be dealt with. And no mere human could or would be willing to suffer what it cost, but Jesus did give all their bills to me to pay. This is what Jesus did with the Father when he came to die for our sins. That's that's what's in this word, Redeemer. But when we say he's our Redeemer, what does the scripture really mean by using that word? We we have certain uses for it, and they're all all valid. But what does scripture mean when it uses that language? The, The basic term you and I well know, to, to buy something back. If you have put it in hock, if you've gone off to a, a pawn store or whatever, you redeem it, you get it back. It's used for redeeming somebody from slavery, buying back their freedom, or, or redeeming or paying a ransom. And, and all those ideas are inherent in Christ's redemption of the sinner too. But, but the New Testament has four places where it specifically teases out this idea in a unique way. And I just want to visit them very quickly with you. The first is in Galatians 3. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. What's the curse of the law? We know one thing that it can't be. It can't mean that the law of God itself was a curse. Scripture tells us just the opposite. Romans 7.12 says the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So what does that mean then? That he redeemed us from the curse of the law. It means that because we, like all of mankind, have broken God's law, we are cursed by that law to suffer eternal death. The wages of sin is death. That's the statement. And scripture says that our rebellion against God has put us under that curse. It happened in Adam, and it's been ratified in us every time we disobey him. But Christ, in his substitutionary atonement, frees us from that curse, from the sentence that's been pronounced upon us in God's court. He stands in our place and he takes the whole of what we owe God both in obedience and the penalty for our disobedience and redeems us out of that out of that condition as condemned criminals. At the cost of his own life and enduring the just wrath of God that was due to us, he redeems believers from the curse of the law. It's astounding. Are you under that curse this morning? Do you know yourself a sinner and liable to his curse? Christ can redeem you. He has shed his blood for that very purpose, to buy you out from under that curse and give you everlasting life. Titus 2 gives us a second look. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. He redeems us from lawlessness. Let me tease that out just a bit. Uh, First John tells us, gives us a definition of that. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. All sin issues from our deep desire To step out from under God's authority and be our own authority. That's what scripture considers lawlessness. Which in the Bible's terms is the lawlessness we need to be redeemed redeemed from because we, we have no right to govern ourselves apart from God. To break the natural order of things is to govern ourselves, to, to bring chaos and selfishness and self-direction and direct rebellion against God's created order and his rights. So when Christ saves us, when we look to him for redemption, he brings us back from slavery to self and destruction to the freedom we were meant to have under the direct lordship of God Himself. For every violation of God's order can only bring pain and heartache and destruction and disorder of every kind. But he redeems us. This is the, if I can draw it down. He redeems us from a lawless heart and instills in us a new desire to love and please and serve Christ. One of the most amazing things to me that God does in redemption is he allows me to love him. When I couldn't before. He redeems us from lawlessness. From living under our own pitiful authority. Into the freedom and the wonder of his blessedness. He gives us a new desire to want to serve him. Oh, we don't do it very well. But we desire it when we didn't care before. Third In Colossians 1, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Here, redemption is used in a slightly different way, and he tells us that it includes the forgiveness of sins. In fact, redemption and the forgiveness of sins are practically synonymous in this statement. It's meant to be that way. To be redeemed by Jesus is to be bought back out of the tyranny and the darkness and bondage to sin and its penalty. To be subjects of Jesus in the light of his presence and to have all of our guilt and our shame removed. Colossians goes on to spell it out a little more deeply in the next chapter. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh... God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. How? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He canceled it. This he set aside, nailing it to his cross. Do you remember what the gospel says? Was Jesus' great crime? Pilate had it nailed above his head. It was spelled out in in several languages. And what did it read? The king of the Jews. That was his great crime. And in that, all of our rebellion was comprehended and nailed to his cross so that we might go free. He canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, nailing it to his cross. And what was that debt? It was twofold. Never forget this. As God's creatures made by him and for him, we were made for the purpose of reflecting the fullness of his holiness and goodness to creation. We owe him that. That's what he made us for. And we've utterly and completely failed at that in every way. I mean, who? Who comes to know God in the reality of who and what he is by meeting you and me? that's what we were created for and this is our great sin Romans puts it in that way it gets misread a lot but what is our great sin we have fallen short of the glory of God we were made to reflect his glory and we fall short secondly we owed the penalty for having failed the first and the penalty was was death The punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. And so as the new head of the human race, Jesus fulfills our original commission in his perfect obedience and pays the full penalty of our sin on the cross. Both sides are fully comprehended in him. Which leads us to our last consideration. In Revelation 14, the redeemed were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. And no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. We covered that in the book of Revelation. And if you want to know it deeper, you can, you can get that online. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. It is as though he entered the prison where all of humanity was on death row and he opened the cell doors and he said, if you'll believe that I've paid for all of your crimes, you can walk out of this prison free and uncondemned today. He redeemed us out of the mass of condemned humankind that we might be that we might be the reward for Christ, for his labors. I don't get that. That thought is so profound, I really don't have words for it, and my heart's not even properly able to to appreciate the wonder of what it means. That in saving us, he said, my great reward is that I have them. If you're not a Christian here today, this is the redemption that he holds out to you this morning. And if you will, by faith, take Jesus as your redeemer. He'll have you. He's paid the price. But make no mistake. I want to be really clear here. As Ruth would not have found herself redeemed apart from becoming Boaz's bride, neither can you know redemption apart from becoming his apart from giving yourself to him in an everlasting covenant where you receive him as your Lord and you become his beloved wife. You can't date Jesus. You have to fully and exclusively become his. He'll take you on no other terms. But he will take you. And believer... Uh, Just take a few moments to refresh and rehearse what he's done for your redemption. He's redeemed you from the curse of the law. He's redeemed you from lawlessness. He has redeemed you from all your sins in forgiveness. And he has redeemed you from the rest of fallen and condemned mankind. And it all gets summed up in one verse in Ruth. Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer and may his name be renowned in Israel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father what an amazing redemption this is. Uh, Sometimes in our attempt to be clear we can oversimplify some of the things that need to be understood more fully and Forgive us when we do that, but I pray this morning some of the richness of what's really wrapped up in this great redemption has come home to our hearts and minds afresh. And if there is a single one here this morning who does not know you, cannot say, Christ is my Redeemer, that they'll bow the knee to you right now, that they will cry out, Save me, forgive my sins. Redeem me from my lawlessness. Take me out of the prison of fallen humanity and make me your own and you will do it. Give them eyes of faith this morning to see the great redemption and the Christ who holds it out so freely. I pray in his name. Amen.